Um, so I don't often really do this, but I'm going to do it tonight. It's Labor Day weekend, right? So I'm going to talk about right livelihood. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's kind of a personal joke. <laughs> I often, a lot of Dharma teachers like orient their teaching to what's happening in the world or, you know, if it's Mother's Day, they talk about mothers or something. Somehow I never think to do that. So I'm like really proud of myself that I, <laughs> that I thought to t- give a talk on right livelihood this weekend. And um, as many of you know, or most of you know, the the Buddha outlined um, a way to think about our lives that supports awakening. And he articulated it in what's called the Eightfold Noble Path. And there are eight limbs to the path. There's right understanding, right intention, right um, action, right speech, right livelihood right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And all of these make up uh, um, three different areas of our life to um, contemplate and to, um, uh, to practice with. And so the, the last area, right mind, effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, is the samadhi basket. It's the basket of contemplation itself of meditation and developing um, the, the skills and the capacities to begin to perceive beyond the surface, beyond the conventional, beyond the ordinary, to start to penetrate reality, start to use our heart and mind to see deeply into the nature of things as they are. And then the, the basket before that, which is the basket of right action, right speech, right livelihood, is the basket of virtue. And I'll say more about that in a minute. And then the uppermost basket is right understanding and right intention is considered the wisdom basket of the Eightfold Path. So right livelihood is in this basket that we refer to sometimes as... Um, Morality. Sometimes it's talked about as ethical conduct. The word that I like and that I feel is most accurate is virtue, which is not a word that we use so much, or we're not. It's kind of gone out of favor, but it's it's a beautiful word, and it has the same root as virility, virtue and virility, same root, and they and virtue. What's implied there, as in virility, has a certain power. In virtue, it's the power of integrity. It's the fa- power of living a life that's, that's integritous. I don't know if that's a word or not, but it's close. That's, um, that's grounded in our deepest values. We could say it that way. Living a life that every part of our life expresses our deepest values. That there's not a compartmentalization of our value, of our spirituality, or what we hold uh, important, but that actually those values and what's important to us really permeate every aspect of our um, uh, inner life and our outer life, both. And so a little bit I want to talk about the um, right livelihood using the template of the three baskets. We'll talk about it in terms of virtue, We'll talk about it a little in terms of, of samadhi, 
of, of meditation, and we'll talk about it in terms of wisdom. And in terms of virtue, there's a lot that the Buddha actually says about right livelihood. There's a lot of talk about um, livelihood, work, money, and the need to sustain ourselves in the world as lay practitioners. And he, again, he gives, he gives different instructions depending if we're uh, lay people or we're monastics. But for lay people, um, the teachings of right livelihood um, include the virtue of both um, non-harming and of sustenance of actually what he would talk about as, as living well. And I'll describe that a little bit. The main principle around livelihood is that the wealth or means should be gained in accord with one's values and virtues. Um, not not, not um, um, putting aside our value or our ethics or... Um, our sense of justice or fairness in order to make money. So money should be made legally, peacefully, without coercion, without violence, honestly, without trickery, without deceit. And basically the underlying values here is whatever we do would be non-abusive, non-exploitative, non-deceitful, non-harming. And then he lists five specific livelihoods to avoid. And they're pretty obvious here because they either um, cause harm or they, um, or they cause others to cause harm. And so, not to deal in weapons. And you know that the dealing in weapons is probably one of the biggest businesses in the world today and I'm sad to say that our country is I think the biggest dealer in weapons in the world today and this is the first livelihood that the Buddha says this should be avoided dealing in weapons the second that he says is important to avoid is dealing in humans dealing in human beings either through slavery or prostitution and one of the sad truths is both of these are on the rise in the world today, partly because of the smallness of the world. Definitely the, the, um, the enslaving and prostituting of women is quite dramatic, the increase because of the smallness of the world and the poorness in certain areas and the wealth in other areas. And the... I I believe, and this is some just my opinion here. I believe some because of the whole uh, emphasis in the um, internet around um, pornography and the, the somehow the the um, fantasy that satisfying one's desires actually leads to happiness. And so there's been a big um, uh, boom in in prostitution and and in slavery. Um, so dealing in weapons dealing in humans dealing in living beings 
this is there's a very strange paradox here in Buddhism, which is you can eat meat. It's actually fine to eat meat in the Buddhist tradition. There's no injunction, and there's, that's a whole nother talk I can give sometime. But um, but it's not okay to deal in the animals that are to be slaughtered, or to slaughter the animals. That's not okay. It's a strange paradox, but that's what's there. So dealing in living beings, whether it's chickens or cows for slaughter, whatever it might be. Dealing in poisons, selling poisons. It's a little bit like selling armaments, but but on this level, which I imagine maybe that happened more during the Buddha's time. I don't know if that happens much, that people actually deal in poisons. Um, Pardon? Well, no, we, uh, that's, that's not exactly drugs. Drugs comes under the last one, which is dealing in intoxicants. So, Teflon. pardon? Teflon. Teflon. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Microwaves? No, no, that's not poison. That's just radiation. Um, so, and you know. Truth be told, some of us may have dealt in some of these at different times in our life, to be honest. Intoxicants sometimes. It's good if it's good once you learn this not to continue. You don't have to go back and fix anything actually is in the the Buddhist way is 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 you work with what's happening now. So um these are pretty clear. These are pretty simple. And for, the most, for most people, these are pretty easy to follow. Of course, there's a level of complexity in our society that makes it tricky. Let's say if you have means, if you have some wealth and you invest the wealth, what are the companies doing that you invest in? What are, what are they doing? If you've invested in Monsanto, you know, what are... What, you know, if they're making some kind of napalm, I think that's what Monsanto made at some point, you know, then, then you know, uh, what's your responsibility? So it brings up ethical questions. It asks us to look carefully at how we participate in the suffering of the world in terms of our livelihood and in terms of our means, how our means are used to participate or not to participate in the suffering that happens in the world. Now there's another level to virtue that also will start to um, 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 seep into the level of samadhi or contemplation or meditation. And simply put, I'll start, I'm going to go back and forth here a little, but just to say that when we start to think about samadhi, partly what that means is what's our presence like at our work? Whatever our work is, whatever work you do, what's your presence like at your work? How, how, not, not, yeah, how, how awake are you at work? And then the virtue part of, of being at work is how are you treating people? How are you treating yourself? 
How are you treating others while you work? And they really start to commingle. The awareness of being, the presence and awareness at work will definitely help inform how we're treating one another while we're working. And it's really a beautiful place of practice, whatever your work may be. You know, we definitely have some, a certain kind of idealization in our country that we should get the perfectly right partner and the perfectly right work. That that's an ideal. And you know, that's really nice when it happens, but it never happens. <laughs> it's not, it's just not possible. You know, I mean, you can get close and that's good. But it's, it's like having a partner, you know, you get the perfect partner and then you see, you know, it might take three months or six months or nine months or a year, or a year and a half, and you see, you know, they're human. They're a problem sometimes. They're not perfect. They can't be perfect because they're human. <laughs> you know, they're not, they're not our imagination is what I'm saying. Our ma- we imagine a perfection, but reality is more perfect than that. Maybe I could say it that way. Reality is more perfect than what we imagine perfection to be. And, and it's true in work. Some jobs look really great, some, and, and some jobs are for the right person. If it's the wrong person in the perfect job, it doesn't even matter. Like, you know, I may want a certain job and you may want a totally different job. So, you know, if you get the job I want, it's, it's not perfect. can't be. And even lining up, even to see, you know, some people get work they really love, and that's great. That's really good. But it's not perfect. Any, anything where there's routine, anything where it's easy to get habituated, it's just, it's a place of practice. And if we can start to really bring our work into our practice, then it gets very interesting. Then it's very interesting, no matter what the work is. And it doesn't mean you, I'm not suggesting, oh, you should always stay at a job that you don't like. But while you're there, how you practice, it's a place of practice for you. This is where the Buddhist tradition and the Buddhist teaching is so rich. Because it says, it's based on the understanding of impermanence that the past is gone, whatever happened is gone. And the future, it's out there, but but what's what's true is happening right now. And our freedom is not based on the past or the future. It, It begins to be based on how we relate to the present moment, how we relate to the reality of our lives as it is, rather than the fantasy of our life as it should be. And different jobs offer different possibilities, different richnesses, different um, rewards dharmically. You know, I know I've had a number of different jobs in my life, and um, some of them have been very boring and and really rich in that way. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying this well yet. Let me, I'll tell you one job. One job I had was... I, um, Pavel's yogurt. How many people like Pavel's yogurt? Yeah. Yeah, I used to make Pavel's yogurt. 
I mean, that's a boring job. <laughs> so by make Pavel's yogurt, it means I used to sit there and take the, you know, stacks, crates of yogurt out of the hot room, right, where they had done their thing and become yogurt and cool them and put in the next ones. <laughs> and then wait till they're ready, right? And, it, and it, you know, it was like in a factory and, you know, I mean, it was a small factory. It was just me in the factory at that point. This is when Pavel's was pretty small. And, and But there was something so simple about it. And um, I have to admit it, it was when I was more, I was a musician, so it also gave me the opportunity to practice. And some jobs give you things like that. So it was kind of a perfect job, but it wasn't like, it wasn't the perfect job. Right? <laughs> it was very helpful at that time in my life. Or, you know, I was a therapist for many years, and that's a very rich and rewarding um, um, way to interact with people and make one's livelihood. But it also had its downside, of course. And it's, it's actually the job I wanted and that I trained for and went to school for and loved and um, felt like was a, a real calling. But it had its pluses and minuses like every job. Dharma teacher definitely has its pluses and minuses. And, and it's got a lot of pluses and it's really beautiful. But there's, um, you know, I, I know the, the backstage deal with being a Dharma teacher. It's, it, you know, it looks better like on Sunday night, right? You know, it looks, <laughs> looks good. The question for us is how do we practice? How do we bring ourselves to our work? So, and you could even consider for a moment, like think about a job like a plumber. We need plumbers, right? They're really important in our society. If we don't have plumbers or garbage people, right? That's actually a really, really important job. You know, I, I was in New York once when the garbage men then, maybe it's women now, but then they were called garbage men. Um, the garbage people went on strike. <laughs> and, and you really quickly learn how important they are to the functioning of society. And, if, and somebody like a plumber, you know, which is not a pretty, um, you know, it's not a red carpet job, right? You're not out on the red carpet, you know, being interviewed by Entertainment Tonight if you're a plumber. Um, um, you know, if a plumber comes in your house and something's wrong and they, uh, and they you know, quickly figure out how to fix it and they're nice in the process, you just love them. <laughs> and they're really doing something. They're really giving something good. They're really giving a service that's really important. And especially, and this is really true, and you could think about this anytime some, a service person or a wait person or anybody who's, who's serving in any way is really nice to you when you need help. How is that? Isn't that a pleasure when somebody cares for you even in their work? that part of their work is actually to take care of you, to help you, and they do that. And that, that's a little bit how we could start to think about virtue in our work. How are we caring for the people who come to us, whether we're teachers or therapists or plumbers or 
weight persons or whatever it might be, wherever you find yourself, you know, a, a computer person who knows what the hell they're doing and come and help you, oh, thank God, even on the phone, right? For those of us who are a little dense or challenged in that area, you know, if you're on the phone and they're just patient with you, right? You're trying to figure out how do you get back online after the whole computer just exploded or whatever. And, and these people are nice and they're kind. So this is an area to bring our presence and our kindness and care to the world, to the world of other beings. So there's the virtue side of it, and then there's the mindfulness side of it. There's this opportunity to practice. So not just the expressive part, which I've been emphasizing so, so far, but the contemplative part of paying attention. What happens to you? What's your inner attitude? Noticing if you're aversive to your work critical of other people, critical of yourself, harsh, starting to begin to liberate yourself in this area, whatever your work may be. Let's see. So how, basically what I'm describing is how do we act in our roles. The Buddha talked about this. Um, he said that there's a rightness in terms of action, a rightness regarding um, persons, and a rightness regarding objects when it comes to work. So the actions is how do we, how do we fulfill our work? Are we diligent? Are we conscientious? Are we present? Are we awake? in terms of how we act in our roles, whether we're employers or employees or colleagues or customers. How do we treat people that we come into contact with moment by moment by moment? You know, it's one thing to sit on your cushion and feel metta and love for everybody in the whole world. It's another thing when you have to deal with a customer who's um, a jerk you know, or who's irate and taking it out on you. This is a place of practice now. You know, how the Buddha talked about that employers should assign workers with chores according to their ability, um, pay adequately, promote their good effort, give vacations, etc., etc., to really um, begin to look wisely. To, and I'm even drawing in now the wisdom basket. Because there's a wisdom to seeing that the irate person, the person who's acting out, who's being a jerk, it, can you see that they're suffering? Do you see that, oh, this is suffering? It is one of the things that really was great about training to be a therapist, because people come in in all kinds of states and, and relate to you in all kinds of ways. And one of the things you learn to do is see when somebody's angry at you or they're they're just acting nutty, right? Something that happens, right? You're a therapist. It's, um, that they're suffering. That this is suffering. And then the suffering, to, if we can actually, if you can actually see that somebody's suffering, it usually cuts the reactivity, the inner reactivity, the aversion we have. That our heart then can be in our work, how we relate to somebody when we're at work.
is from Dido Lori, Zen teacher. He says, the foundation of work practice is mindfulness, a state of consciousness in which the body is relaxed, the senses are alert, and the mind is clear and focused on the task at hand. You know, we, we build this capacity a bit by coming here sitting, being in our bodies, letting our bodies be awake and relaxed, and then starting to collect ourselves with the body and the breathing. And then we want to take this capacity, it's not just for being on the cushion, we want to take it into every area of our life, including our work, including our interactions with people, whatever our work may be. He says this attentiveness is direct experience. Mindfulness is not static. It moves with the events, the event, the events in our daily life. Mindfulness develops the ability to flow, concentrate, and remain in the present. This is part of the off-the-cushion practice that we cultivate. So the virtue, the kindness, the um, non-harming both of our, um, of our, of the form of our work and how we manifest within our work. And then this is supported by mindfulness. The mindfulness allows us to see our reactivity and not be in the thrall of it, not be caught by it. And you know, I'm using mindfulness as the basis, but actually I think we could think about any work that we find, that we love and find easy. We will find the same principles of mindfulness. If you're an artist and you love to paint or dance, or you're um, a computer program and you love to program, there's a certain presence of, of paying attention, of being fully in the experience, of giving oneself to the experience. These are some of the principles that support right livelihood. The wisdom aspect of right livelihood has to do a lot with the inner attitude of this giving. And it really, it's a bigger, uh, it's a bigger um, ideal, we could say, which is or a bigger concept in the sense of how do we give ourselves to this life? What do we have to offer? What are we going to offer in our life? And often people think, oh, they have to do something big. And that's not necessarily the understanding of right livelihood. The understanding of right livelihood is that we do things wholeheartedly, fully. Uh, Suzuki Roshi would say, whatever you do, uh, give yourself to it fully so that you burn up in the experience. And it's one reason why we like the arts or we like athletics is because we see people doing that. You see a basketball player totally give themselves, they're totally immersed in their work, in what they're doing. There's no separation, there's no um, reflection even. It's a full giving, and we love to see the completeness of that, whether it's in 
basketball or dance or theater or music. And we love to see it because it resonates with something in us that we know is possible for us to really give ourselves to whatever it is that we're doing fully. And so in the Zen tradition of Buddhism, um, work is one very, very important place of practice that's highlighted over and over again with that the uh, aesthetic, the Japanese aesthetic of, of maybe um, um, flower ornamentation, flower arrangement. You know, if somebody comes every week and, and offers this. This is part of their work. Somebody brings the flower and here it is. And it's a gift. And this is the wisdom basket of right livelihood, which has to do with our dana, which is what do we give to this world? And it's a, it's a beautiful question. It's not to be meant as a judgment over you, but it's a question, it's a contemplation to begin to open to, which, which has a beautiful question as its basis, which is, what do I want to give? What would you like to give? What would be fun to give? What would be satisfying to give? What would be beautiful to give? What would be enriching to give? What does the world need? What would be beneficial to the world? And so we're weaving in one of the main Buddha qualities, which is this giving or dana, generosity. That when we work, and when we work in a place that brings together our virtue and our mindfulness, we give of ourselves whether it's of our creativity or our intelligence or our care or our kindness or our intelligence or our helpfulness or our vision. And I would suggest that the moments when you're really present at work when you're really there and you're free, that you are, you are enacting all three of these, both the virtue of right livelihood and the mindfulness of right livelihood and the wisdom of right livelihood. Tartong Tulku talks about being willing to face work openly, honestly, to see what's needed, to see what our strengths and weaknesses are, and be willing to change, be willing to learn, be willing to grow in our work, and to let our work be a service. And it's okay if it serves us. It's totally fine for the work to serve us as well as other people. Something I didn't say somewhere, but... Oh, it's about money, because sometimes people think spirituality and money don't exactly go together. Uh, this is from um, Paiuto Bhikkhu, who said, Buddhists recognize that acquiring wealth is one of life's fundamental activities. One of life's fundamental activities. And the Buddha gave many teachings on the proper way to acquire wealth. But he always stressed that the purpose of wealth is to facilitate the highest development of human potential. 
And so it's so then we see the wisdom again within the teachings of right livelihood. The Buddha said basically there are three levels of of um, uh, acquiring wealth. The first is that one should acquire wealth means in order to have a reasonable amount of material and economic security. That that's a good thing. That that's an important thing. It actually allows us to relax. It's one of the basises for, for deepening of practice is that we feel like we have enough of whatever it is we need. And so in the monastic community, that's described as having food, shelter, clothing, and medicine. And what's important about that ideal, especially for us as lay people, is to know that if we needed to, we could live that simply. And if you've ever traveled and been to Asia or third world countries or countries where they live much more simply and you've lived that way, you see that you could. All you need is shelter from the elements, from the animals, food, clothes, medicine. That's all we actually need to survive and actually to survive with a certain level of well-being. Now, we live in a more complex society. And so for most of us, we actually need a little more than that. We need car insurance. Actually, we need a car first. And then we need car insurance and, we, and things like that. Or health insurance in this society is actually very important. Maybe we could put that under the medicine uh, heading. But to understand that that's not a bad thing, that that's considered a good thing and part of practice. And then, but the material security is a foundation for the other levels, which is to have mental well-being, really it's physical and mental well-being, and then that well-being being a support or a ground or a foundation for inner freedom and awakening. <clears throat> Let's see. So the wisdom includes this understanding that we all make our offerings in life. And one of the ways we make our offering is in how we develop the means to have some material security. And that wherever we find ourselves, it's a possibility to make that action, our job, an offering of service. Tagore wrote, he said, I slept and dreamt life was joy. I woke and saw that life was service. I acted and discovered that service was joy. I slept and dreamt life was joy. I woke and saw that life was service. I acted and discovered that service was joy. That when we give ourselves, when we give of ourselves very fully, wherever we find ourselves, we, we reap the riches, not only the other people, we reap the goodness of that. And it really winds back to the virtue. There's something good in the heart. There's something satisfying to the soul, even though we don't have a soul in Buddhism. 
again from Tartong Tulku, he says, It is our nature as human beings to be satisfied and fulfilled. Work gives us the opportunity to realize this satisfaction by developing the true qualities of our nature. It's a means to create harmony and balance within ourselves and within our world. Through our work, we contribute our energy to life, investing our body, our breath, our mind in creative activity. We fulfill our natural role in life and inspire beings with the joy of vital participation. Now, there's one, one more little piece I want to say here. It's, you know, I like words. I often look up words. So I looked up livelihood and I looked up work. And livelihood means means of support, sustenance, energy. And, and one of the ways I like to think about um, right livelihood uh, is also in terms of um, giving our energy or our time. You know, our time on the earth is very short. And one of the main places that we give of it is in our work. That we give ourselves. And if, if, if it's even m moderate these days, it's basically eight, eight hours a day. Some people work a lot more, actually too much. That's a different, that's wrong livelihood. It's true. It would be considered wrong livelihood. It isn't balanced. It isn't in harmony. If you're working, you know, 70, 80 hours a week, which some people do. Um, but then I looked up the word work, and it's a very interesting word. Physical or mental effort toward a goal or accomplishment from the word verg, which means to do. And so it's a nice, it's an interesting balance because part of contemplative practice is learning how to be. And then the expression of that in doing. How to, how to express being in doing. How to let the beingness that often in our society we're not in touch with, how to contemplate that, how to develop that skill, the beingness of of um, mindfulness, the beingness of being present, and then to let the beingness express itself. So from verg to do, and it's related to these other words like rot or write, W-R-I-G-H-T, or liturgy. The word work is closely related to the word liturgy, which I didn't know. So it begins to imply the sacredness of right livelihood. And then, and this is a stretch, but I'm going to try here. It's also related to the word orgy, right? <laughs> I told you it was a stretch, but but orgy originally meant when when verg was the word, orgy originally meant secret rites or worship. So that's the original. So this is a different way to think about work in terms of orgy, and and especially. <laughs> practicing in the world. It's a stretch. It's okay. <laughs> Give me another minute or two. Let's see what I can do with it. Um, but I was thinking about it in terms of the secret rites or worship. Um, and I thought about it this way. I thought about what one of my teachers said. Um, 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 Sokni Rinpoche. He said, you know, he's a lama. And I asked him about it. I said, oh, are, you, um, are you a monk? He said, no, no, I'm not a monk. I have a family and children and life and everything. He said, I'm a secret monk. 
I'm a lama. Lama, you know, they, they act like lay people. Or he said half a monk. He said outside lay person, inside monastic. And I've often thought of that for us here in the West who are interested in practicing Buddhism deeply, who are interested in awakening as the goal of practice, and yet we're living lay lives. And so we're secret monastics. We, we may come as plumbers or as therapists or as writers or as whatever you may be, computer programmers, but inside there's a monk there sitting at the computer or working on the pipes or teaching children in kindergarten. And then one way to think about work, and you could play with this sometime, is think about, oh, how would the Buddha do this job? How would the Buddha do your job? How would Kuan Yin do your job if they were there? And I'll, I'll tell you one more story. It's a good story. It's about um, Sun Sunim, who was a famous Korean Zen master who came to America to teach. And he was, um, he couldn't speak English too well at first, and he was, he didn't have much money, and he was living wherever Brown University is. I don't know the town. Does anybody know? Where? Providence. Providence. So he was in Providence. And um, so he was working in a laundromat in his robes, and, you know, and people were, you know, coming in, college students doing their laundry, and you know, and they were kind of interested. This kind of weird guy, bald head, robes. He's cleaning the laundromat and giving out change or whatever he was doing at the laundromat. Not a not a very complicated job. And um, and people started to get interested and get to know him. And he lived upstairs from the laundromat. And so then he would take people upstairs and he'd teach them how to meditate. And they'd be meditating and he'd go down and work in the laundromat. And then he'd come back and ring the bell and things like that. <laughs> And it's how he started, it's how people got to know him. And it's like having the Buddha at the laundromat, right? I mean, that Santanim was a brilliant and wise and amazingly awake being when he was alive. Um, and he was quite happy to do his job in the laundromat. So you might just reflect for a minute or two, how would the Buddha, how would Kuan Yin do your job? What would it look like if they were walking in in your suit or your whatever outfit you wear for your work. It's an interesting question. How would they treat the people who came to them for whatever it is you might be selling or offering, whatever service you had, or whatever you're offering in terms of writing or dancing or singing. And what keeps you from offering that yourself? Whatever it is, however you see the Buddha or Kuan Yin, what keeps you from right from the wisdom of right livelihood? And of course this is a non I want to be careful here. It's easy I, I don't want I'm not speaking in this way to bring up judgment about however you are at work or whatever your whatever conflicts you may have at work but to start to bring it up as an ongoing a living contemplation to see what's possible at work if you bring your virtue your mindfulness and your wisdom 
and start to see what happens in terms of right livelihood. And of course, I just want to remind you, right is not in terms of right and wrong so much. Right means to begin to bring our lives in accord with the truth of the way things are. To bring the deepest truth that we know into the world. To let the Buddha qualities, the heartfulness and the mindfulness and the wisdom emerge into this world, which needs it desperately these days. So I'll end with a, a poem, a Buddhist poem, the Buddha's poem. It's from the Dhammapada, which is really the poetry of the Buddha. He says, The wise who are trained and disciplined shine out like beacon lights. They earn money just as a bee gathers honey without harming the flowers. They let it grow as an anthill slowly gains in height. With wealth wisely gained, they use it for the benefit of all. Let's sit together, please, for a minute. The wise who are trained and disciplined shine out like beacon lights. They earn money just like a bee, gathering honey without harming the flowers. They let it grow as an anthill, slowly gains in height. With wealth wisely gained, they use it for the benefit of all. May we offer the merit of our practice here together freely for the benefit of all. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, from the suffering of war, of ignorance, of racism, of division, confusion, hatred. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken. May we realize our true nature, our Buddha nature. May we allow the qualities of Buddha nature to be expressed through our work and in every part of our life. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.